You've read or heard or preached the scripture this week. Now what? Join me, Pastor Carissa, and my colleague, Pastor Alan, as we explore the spaces between the Sundays in our podcast, Soft Idolatry. Welcome to Soft Idolatry. Today is Season 3, Episode 2, and uh, we are, again, spending some time in Revelation. Our texts this week are Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and then continuing with chapter 3, verses 13, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 22. Um, Again, this is not code. Uh, These are letters. And the title of our sermon this week is A Letter for Yins. So, a little... um, little shout out to our Pittsburgh roots for whoop, this whoop. podcast. <laughs> About time we get a That's shout great. out for something other than spiking COVID cases. <laughs> <laughs> word, yes, indeed. And Speaking in, of revelations. Yeah, and we we co-preached. The, the, the first two sermons of this series are co-preached. So this one, uh, for those of you who listened to it or, or saw it on the church services past week, there were three of us, and we each preached a piece. And that's how it's going to work with this sermon on letters that's going to drop this this weekend, is we each preached a piece of it. We literally each did a third. Uh, well, I don't oh, know. Wait, I wait, wait. I mean, on, you know. On letters? I thought it was on Revelations. Yeah. <sighs> The letters to the churches in the Revelation. You are really obnoxious this morning. This is what we get for recording in the morning instead of the afternoon. Someone's awake here. <laughs> Actually, no. I had four and a half hours sleep. Oh. <laughs> so it's more like you're punchy. Uh, I'm punchy. Yeah. Yes. I, I I thought you were going to jump on me when I said Revelations. I was I was dangling some, some raw meat there. I'm, and, uh, well, I don't eat red meat, so I didn't bite. I just said raw meat. You know, it could be it could be sushi. That's fair. I would if it had been sushi, I would have bitten. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Anyway, um, so how do you guys think it went? Well, well you know, so, it was like yeah, really I really liked my congregation. You know, had I wasn't a lot of sure how my congregation was going to take it. it. Uh, they appreciated having hey guys. To hear that it was really really um, interesting. Hey, you guys. Um, so that's probably good that we had post editing. And we didn't all try to preach at once. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, we kind of got lucky that maybe because we were doing something more introductory, all three of our parts flowed well together and there were no disagreements or There was no tinkering that had to be done after we wrote the sections that each of us wrote. I think we also naturally gravitated towards the part of the sermon that we're best at. So, like, Alan took the introduction and had a really cool story with it. Carissa did um, Trouble in the Text and Trouble in the World. And then I got to kind of wrap it all up in a nice bow and talk about grace in the text and grace in the world. Um, This week, when we kind of switched our parts a little bit and did not take the one that we are more naturally suited towards, there was a little bit more conflict. There was. We each wrote our pieces, and it wound up sounding like all of us just talking about different things at the same time. (laughs) And we had uh, had to go back. It's an interesting experiment to get three voices trying to give one message to five congregations. And I think what was particularly challenging about this week is we were looking at 
letters to specific churches. And we were trying to think about how we would talk about these letters in our own specific churches. And then we realized, oh, crap, we have five churches that we're trying to preach one message to. Right. And that is just super challenging because the realities are different in each congregation, just as they were different in the seven congregations to which John wrote. Yeah, yeah. And so this week's uh, this week's sermon was definitely harder to put together, I think. And we're we're changing up the way that we're doing things over the next couple of weeks. We will each, you know, we'll work on the podcast together and exegesis together. And then one person is going to do one sermon. So this is just a really interesting. It, it's funny, I think, that this came at a time where we're trying to write one letter to five churches about seven letters to seven <laughs> churches, right? Yeah. Yeah, this this has the feeling of a uh, story problem in seventh grade math. <laughs> it, really, it really does. It's very meta, too, isn't it? Yeah, basically, we're, oh, yes. we're, basically we're trying to work together on an SAT problem virtually. <laughs> yeah, this is the weirdest group project ever. Ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we so had one. So the sermon... Oh, yeah, go ahead. You, no, you go first, because I was about to go off on a rabbit trail that has nothing to do with any of this. Okay. So this week, we are just looking at the letter to the church in Laodicea. But I think for the podcast, we might want to dive a little bit into each of the churches. So, uh, Carissa, why don't you tell us about the letter to the church in Ephesus? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So if you want to get the overview of the letters and the last letter, if you want that intro and wrap up, listen to our sermon this week. It should have dropped yesterday. This The podcast will drop on Monday. Um, and so here's the, the rest of the, the letters. Um, so the first church that a letter is opened to is the church in Ephesus. And I always gravitate toward this one, not necessarily from the content, but because I've actually been at the ruins of Ephesus, which are super, super cool. And uh, what were you going to say? Speaking of rabbit, speaking of speaking rabbit, of ra- no, this isn't a rabbit trail. I promise it comes around. So um, when you go to the to Ephesus now, there is a town near it where the tourists stay. Um, it's called Selchuk, and it's a really cool little little place to stay. And uh, but Ephesus itself is ruins. What happened is it had been a port town. People would would come there um, by sea, and the uh the tide kept coming in farther and further and further like the the land was or the water was coming in farther and further and so they had to keep kind of shifting things in town until eventually um the the original port of Ephesus was abandoned and there's lots of old buildings there there's lots of church buildings there um because that's kind of the center of where Christianity was at that that time and place um, there in Ephesus and some of these other places were in that that kind of area near Turkey. And now there is no Christian church in Ephesus. There is no Christian church in Turkey, really. Um, old, beautiful old cathedrals have either been converted to mosques or museums or abandoned and left to be ruins. 
all of the the monastic desert churches dug out into caves um, are just tourist sites now. And so while there is the, the there's these buildings that are evidence of the the church life that once was in this area, that's all there is. There is no actual church. And this is where I bring it back around. I promise you that this was not a rabbit trail. It does wrap back around again. Um, we have churches like that today that are essentially just buildings. There is no church life there. They might gather on Sunday morning to sim- sing a few hymns at a dirge pace, um, but they're just a building and nothing more. And... Um, when we read the letter to the the church in Ephesus, that's really their problem. They used to do great stuff. But um, this letter says if they don't repent and get back to their roots and really become a vital church again, they are going to die and become nothing more than a building. And what we see today is that happened. The church in that area is nothing more than ruins anymore. And this is a pretty common thread in these letters to the seven churches. We see letters to churches that have grown complacent or bored or lukewarm or ho-hum or however you want to put that. Um, Specifically, the church in Ephesus lost their legacy of love and hospitality and got too stuck in the the rut of the way things uh, have always been, (laughs) the way we've always done things. And they weren't doing them for the love and hospitality anymore, but because that's what they do. And then you have another type of letter um, to persecuted churches, churches that are going through some sort of suffering. And I think that many churches today can um, can appreciate that feeling now. And I'm going to let Rebecca go a little bit more into the specific types of suffering that we see specifically in the churches in Sardis and Philadelphia. Um, but the thing that I want to pull out of the, the letter to the church in Smyrna today is a very important note about uh, Semitism, anti-Semitism. <laughs> um, there is a word in this text um, that is sometimes used poorly or interpreted badly or used as a justification for xenophobia. Um, don't do that. <laughs> when the text here, and this is from chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, when it talks about Jews here, Do not use that as cause to be anti-Semitic. That is not the intent. At the time that these letters were written, the Christian church was still essentially a sect of Judaism. It hadn't quite formed its own self-identity yet. It was still a sect of Judaism. So when they say those Jews, um, they're talking about the other people that are kindred in faith, that are um, doing things differently, that have some kind of beef with them. Um, in fact, in a recent conversation with someone, I said some some red flags. They said, were the red flags when you're interpreting Revelation or other scripture? I said, well, two big ones are if scripture is used to scare someone or if it is used to look down on a specific group of people. Be cautious of those interpretations. So in this context, Jews refers to the religious authorities who are working in league with the shady empire. So this is about an internal disagreement within what is considered the broader Jewish community. It's not coming from the outside. Yeah, I think that uh, your 
point is really important. Um, Christians are, are just starting to take the name Christian, uh, where 50 years earlier they were calling themselves the way. Uh, but even still, they are essentially indistinguishable to outsiders. And in general, Judaism was officially tolerated by the Roman Empire. So for the most part, systematic persecution of Christians on the part of the Roman Empire has not yet begun. It will soon, but at the time this is being written, Christians are still more of a curiosity. And when you do see that conflict reflected, the conflict between church and synagogue reflected in the scriptures, it's because they are so close. You don't you don't fight as hard or as nasty with anyone as you fight with members of your own family. And the, the conflicts, especially when they turned violent, were in particular communities. They were not everywhere in the Jewish diaspora. And, and yet they still get reflected in these scriptures because they were very much a fact of life in some of the places in which the scriptures were written down. Right, right. And that's um, this struggle with um, identity and um, how closely tied they are to be with the Jewish community and with the secular community of the empire um, really gets into the, the two letters that you're looking at today. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking at the letters to Pergamum and Thyatira. And the, these are congregations that are comfortable uh, financially, economically. They're comfortable. They have tradespeople uh, in their ranks. They have people who are merchants in their ranks. And all of these tradesmen and merchants belong to guilds and guilds are just professional associations and most of these guilds are filled with gentiles with people who are part of the roman empire in some, in the society of the roman empire in some way shape or form and who worship Greek and Roman gods. Mm -hmm. And so every chapter of every guild anywhere is going to be dedicated to some god, which also means that they will be offering prayers to that god at the guild meetings. They might be performing sacrifices. They might be uh, called to eat meat that was sacrificed to those gods or perhaps the guild is going to put on a feast for the community and then they'll really have to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And if you are one of the Christians who belongs to one of these guilds, you probably need to participate fully in the guild if you want to advance in your trade. And what John is saying is you can't compromise with idolatry. You can't be a part of 
these practices, you have to keep yourself pure. And this is going to be, truthfully, this is going to be a struggle for all Christians everywhere at every time. How much do you compromise with the society in which you live? We see... We see this, though I don't think it's the best fight for us to fight now, we see this in the question over youth sports on Sunday mornings. Uh, Do we accommodate this or do we fight it? Um, Do we tell our children, no, you may not play baseball or soccer or you may not swim on the swim team because those have Sunday morning practices or meets or what have you. And then our kids might be... Exiled from some of their groups of friends in school if they are not participating in the same sports. So these challenges don't go away. The The way in which they are expressed just changes. And this is really one of the big, big conflicts in the early church. It's also, to me, really interesting because this is at odds with what Paul teaches Uh, Paul says there are no other gods, so the idols are meaningless and go ahead and eat the meat that's been sacrificed to them. Uh, Similarly, Acts, we, we hear, we see Peter having a dream in which God tells him, eat whatever animals you want. The, the rules about kosher don't apply anymore. So, where do we draw the line? And that was a challenge in the first and second centuries, and it's a challenge today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of challenges today, if I could uh, switch gears a little bit to talk about persecution, which is always a, an exciting topic that everyone wants to talk about. <laughs> um, so I think as American Christians, when we hear church persecution, We're thinking about things like the government not letting um, kids pray in school. We're thinking about people having to work on Sunday morning. We're thinking about the things that make it almost impossible for people to attend church on Sunday. But when we're talking... Or happy holidays. Right. Or happy holidays Mm. or... Yeah. 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 So... And and for the record, the government does not uh, prohibit kids from praying in school it prohibits official prayers on the part of the school it 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 prohibits teachers from leading the students in compulsory right i'm okay that was a rabbit trail we won't go down it but um (laughs) when we're when we're thinking about um the type of persecution that john is talking about um in particularly in the church in philadelphia he's talking more about persecution that is done by the state and he's also talking about persecution that um, is is just like very bad luck. So like earthquakes or fires or floods, um, things that we have no control over, uh, that no one caused, but that are wrecking havoc on our faith communities. So um, when he's talking about persecution by the state, uh, what he means by that is if you were living at this time, and you wanted uh, to go about your business, there were certain compromises that you had to make. Like you had to pay taxes to Rome, 
but you also had to be really careful about who or what you were worshiping uh because rome uh the emperor thinks that he is god so if you are worshiping god jesus you are actually uh committing treason um so this threat of assimilation um is a type of persecution <coughs> <coughs> is a type of persecution because there was no such thing as freedom of religious expression at that time. But another type of persecution that was equally problematic in these early churches um, were you have to think about where these churches are located. So they're located in Asia, um, areas that even to this day are frequently devastated by earthquakes and floods and um, drought. So the early churches were experiencing these hardships, but every time that this happened, it would set the church back 50 years. So say there's an earthquake, um, they didn't have like the material to rebuild the churches, to uh, reconfigure their agricultural structure, um, farming practices. Um, so they would so they would be decimated by this. And as you'll see in uh, the letter to the church in Laodicea that we're talking about when we're preaching, Jesus is particularly upset with churches that are not facing persecution, who are refusing to help the churches that are. Um, just because your church is doing well or your little corner of the world is doing well, if your neighbor is suffering, then you are not doing well. And I think that that is a message that applies to our churches, particularly in America, that even with the COVID-19 pandemic, comparatively to other churches, we are doing well financially. And our inability to empathize with, provide resources to, um, support churches that are not in our position is problematic. Um, and, and so we see that Jesus is calling this out way before our time. It's not a new problem, but I think these letters invite us to rethink what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ anew. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I think that, that that's a really important note, this interconnectedness of us all. And I think that that is a thread that pulls together all seven of these very diverse letters, is that the complacency of some churches um, about the suffering of others. Yeah, I, I think that is super important. And the other thread that I think pulls all of this together is repentance. Jesus is not uh, wanting to punish. Jesus is wanting the congregations to return to faithfulness. Uh, even though he says to the Laodiceans, uh, be hot or cold or I will spit you out, essentially, uh, Jesus does not want to forsake any church or destroy any church. These are the churches that Jesus loves and uh, he's going to present messages that are shocking, that shake them out of their slumber, their complacency. And it takes some harsh language sometimes and some really crazy images. And And we, we have only just begun to see the crazy images that we're going to get in Revelation. Ooh, but boy. the <laughs> point of all of it is to shake people loose from 
their settled ways because God is always doing a new thing. And if we're stuck in our routines, we're not going to see what's happening. We're going to miss it. And we don't realize that we've started to walk away from God thinking that we've been on the path the whole time. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's really important for, for churches to remember that when God says, when it, when I love that, you know, be hot or cold, but not lukewarm, it's kind of like piss or get off the pot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and God is not saying that because God wants to see a church stop doing stuff. God wants to see it like get back on track. And that's a great call for us right now during this pandemic. I think it's good that the church got shaken up. I've said it a hundred times in the past few months, and I'll say it again. It's good that we got shaken up because we were lukewarm, and now we can't be. Yeah. I mean, don't ever romanticize the pandemic and say, hey, this is great. Right, right, no. It's awful. (laughs) It sucks, yeah. But... Let's go out there and make some lemonade. Yes. You know, this is this is our opportunity. We have been forced to do church differently over the last four months. I think one of the blessings of the pandemic, again, not to romanticize it, is it has unveiled to me the difference between the things in my life that are essential and the things that I'm doing because I'm bored. And I imagine that that kind of reflection, a lot of people are doing right now because like, what else is there to do while we're stuck at home? Um, but particularly as it relates to church, um, it's, it's helped me and it's helped my people think about like, okay, what are the essential practices that comprise our life together? If we say that worship, in-person worship, in my particular case, is an essential practice, then how can we adapt that to keep our people safe? And this type of conversation, I really don't think would have been possible before the pandemic because we were so comfortable in our routines of the way that we had always done things that even having a conversation about like, well, what defines us as a worshiping community? Um, we, we just would not have had the language to talk about that. And I imagine that's going on in other areas of life as well. I imagine uh, people are um, kind of reimagining and reorienting uh, who they are and what they want out of life. And I just hope and pray that the church is asking those questions too, so that because at some point this pandemic is going to end and when we are on the other side of it um i want to be on the other side of it with people who have done the work of discernment of reflection and who have um who are brave and vulnerable and willing to follow god into this new place wherever that may be yeah and you know something Preach. that <laughs> something that just struck me too as you were, you were talking is i think a lot of this is the growing pains mm-hmm. of going from being the lukewarm church to being the church that has been persecuted we're not being persecuted by the powers that be at, at this point at least but we are we've been through an earthquake right we've been through a na- we're going through a natural disaster uh, that's what a, a virus could be considered a natural disaster. It's not man-made. Conspiracy theorists, COVID-19, not man-made, <laughs> just a thing that happened um, in in the broken world. 
And and that's a really uncomfortable place to be in, too. We're not used to being the persecuted church. We're used to being powerful, and now yeah. we're not. Yes, and, and I think that leads to another thing. Um, we were used to being a key part of the power structure, and we are going through a massive paradigm shift in our society. We, you and I particularly... Carissa were born of of a generation that had this expectation of sort of the the post war economy and society, and everything was going to get better all the time. And uh, you just you you stay in the you color inside the lines, and everything is going to be great. And we didn't realize at the time all of the incorrect assumptions that that paradigm was based on. And what has been exposed, especially in the last 20 years or so, is all of the places where that paradigm falls short. But we are all going through incredible anxiety as we try to find a new and more stable paradigm, realizing that if we are going to construct a new paradigm that men's and women's voices should have equal weight in determining that paradigm, that black people, Asian people, Latinx people, everybody gets a voice in determining that paradigm, which is really the, uh, the Christian way of constructing things, acknowledging that everyone is a beloved child of God and everyone is equally loved and valued in God's eyes. But that transition is scary and some people will fight to push things back into the old paradigm even though it didn't work. Some people just don't want to be bothered or are tired of the fighting and want to uh, hide in their bunkers until it's all over. And then the rest of us are in some spot on the continuum of embracing the anxiety and the uncomfortableness and moving into the new paradigm, whatever it ends up being. Yeah. Let's not be the Israelites asking Moses to take us back to Egypt, because that's what we knew. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think this moment affords the church, particularly in America, an incredible opportunity. And that opportunity is going to come with growing pains. Like people will not adapt to the new paradigm. And that is sad, but that is to be expected. Um, But even just thinking about like this podcast that we're doing, I think it's a really fun, innovative, creative solution to the moment that we are in. And I participate in this podcast knowing full well that half of my congregation isn't isn't even able to listen to it. And then half of half won't listen to it. So I'm talking about like 25% of my congregations. But for those 25%, I think this could be a really important point of connection, especially here in Pennsylvania as COVID cases are on the rise and we're spending more time at home. People need that connection. They need that point of contact and our job as uh, leaders in our faith communities is to come up with creative ways to meet those needs. Yeah. Have you, so 
uh, Rebecca, I know you experienced this at one point, and I've heard this from a couple of folks too. Alan, I'm curious if you have. Um, when we tell people that, the, like, we're like, well, we want to work together and we want to give each other a little bit of a break and ease the burden. So we're co-preaching a sermon series and leading a, a podcast and Bible study and all that. And people are like, what? I never thought of that. And you're like, it really, like, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it came so naturally out of a conversation we had that I don't, like, it didn't seem that mind-blowing. But it. Yeah, what's the reaction been? I'm just curious with your colleagues. With with my colleagues, yes, uh, my my colleagues are are impressed. I think my congregation uh, has enjoyed it. The ones who have spoken to me about it, but yeah, my colleagues are impressed. I think I had a moment like that when it occurred to me before we had had our conversations. Uh, but yeah, it was more like here's a way that I can um, get a week of vacation without uh, upsetting my congregation. You know. Well, and I feel like <laughs> um, I feel like this question of how are clergy going to take time off in the middle of a pandemic is an adaptive challenge, right? So, like in the old model, we would tell our congregations, "I'm taking this week off." They would line up pulpit supply, and no one would bug us. Theoretically, <laughs> for those seven days. But in this new model where like everyone is at home 24 seven and people are experiencing weird and varied pastoral concerns, many of us have not taken time off since the pandemic started. So working with working together and identifying this shared problem and trying this kind of creative solution is a way for us to get a break. But it's also a way for us to say, we're going to be in this for a while. We don't know how long it's going to last. And we understand that we are asking our congregations to do so much creative thinking that if we can kind of take the burden of how are they going to put together a virtual worship service in our absence away from them, like that is just going to benefit multiple people at the same time. Because I know in my congregations, I have one person who has the technological skill set to help me put virtual worship together. But um, he is not attending in-person worship right now because of uh, a variety of health concerns. Um, so, you know, trying to come up with a way forward when you feel like you have your hands tied behind your back because of the pandemic, I think is is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think the other important thing that this does too, I mean, it's fine when times are normal and stuff is stable to just call in pulpit supply, like call up a friend, you know, at the seminary or something like that. Um, that's fine. But right now in the midst of this crisis, this continuing crisis and a, a crisis of faith for a lot of people, it's so important to have consistency and a familiar face and voice in the pulpit. And that's part of the reason I have very, very you know, I just recently used a recorded sermon from a colleague as a way to get a break one week. But I just think it's so important for them to hear and a familiar voice and see a familiar face. And so this is a way doing these first two weeks where we're co-preaching for the congregations to get to know each of the three of us. So even when one of us is taking a week off, there's a familiar face there. Yeah, I, I think that is um, I mean, that's that's why I go into the sanctuary in my church to record the sermons. I really wanted 
my congregation to feel like they're still in church, even though they know that they're not. That's really funny. And and that's one of those, like, the... the um temperament or, or personality of a congregation. My congregations love seeing me sitting on my front porch preaching. They said, we love the porch sermons. It, you've invited us into your home. And um, and I've even told that like my porch is like a sacred space for me. That's like the special place if I'm alone or with someone. Like that's a, a important place for me. Um, so it's just well, really funny. Well, very often... This- very often the spirits are present on your porch. That yes, yeah, when where two or more are gathered, <laughs> the spirits are there on my porch. <laughs> may may the scotch be with you <laughs> and also with you. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that, so that's an example like it's it's just such a special place for me in so many different and I think that that shows through. Um, and so it just really goes with the temperament of the congregations. Some need to feel like they're in church. Some need to feel like we're all in this together. We're all stuck at home. <laughs> Let's just own it. So it's just funny how that works out differently. Yeah. 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 It's really, <clears throat> it's really interesting. So my two churches have resumed in-person worship for those who, um, who would like it. Um, and I've learned a lot over this last couple of months about sacred space. So I mean, so I've been living in my apartment now for three years, I think, which is the longest I've ever lived in any place um, uh, other than my childhood home. So I didn't really understand like the sacred space nature of my churches because I hadn't been there that long. And it really wasn't until we kind of came back after uh, the worst of the pandemic was over that I finally got like the importance of my butt being in this chair, in this pew, facing this direction that my family's been sitting in for centuries. Um, and I'm not saying like we should rush to open our churches for that, but I think we can't discount how important it is for people to be in their space with their congregations worshiping God. So, so yeah, I mean, I've just learned a lot about, even though I think worship is uh, good and we should be flexible, I think there are some things that we were doing that are worth continuing. Well, I think we've got a lot to uh, to chew on as we go through this series, and I think we've given uh, our listeners a very interesting glimpse into what it's like to pastor during these times. We have pulled back the curtain, as it were. Yes. So perhaps this would be an opportune moment to... Um, Pray everyone out. Carissa, would you like to pray everyone out? I would love to do so. Uh, Let's pray. God of all, we just thank you for um, the creativity and imagination that is alive and well in the church today. We ask that you would continue to fill each and every one of us with your spirit to be a part of um, everything that, that we're 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 working on right now. Let it be your work, not ours. We pray for all of those who are feeling lonely and tired during this pandemic. Um, we ask that you would give them a renewed sense of your presence. Continue to be with us as we try to uh, unravel meaning from this confusing and strange text that you have left us with today. 
We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, may you go forth in grace to love and serve the Lord by loving and serving one another. Amen. Amen. Hey, um, hey, Alan. Yes, Carissa. So, you know, like there's all these weird things happening in the world right now. And, and did you hear about the llamas recently? Wait, what things? I heard it's going to be apocalyptic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> I'm rolling my eyes. Thanks for joining us on Soft Idolatry. For show notes and more information, check out our website at softidolatry.com. To send us questions or comments, you can email us at info at softidolatry.com. And if you'd like to help support this podcast, please become a patron at www.patreon.com slash softidolatry. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. <laughs>